Well, good morning, everyone. That is possibly one of the most famous passages in the whole of the Old Testament. And what a privilege it is for us to be able to look at it today. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, but I shouldn't have been really, when just before the service, this strange man sat down beside me and said, hello. Uh, it's good to welcome Ian and Rosie White here. Uh, and the reason they're here is because after the evening service tonight, Ian and I heading up to Luton Airport. We've got a hotel there overnight, catching an early flight out to Romania. And um, we're going to be spending some time until uh, flying back next Monday, uh, training church leaders out there in how to study the Word of God and how to teach and preach it. So you can be the judge whether we're likely to be any, any good uh, by the end of this morning. But we've got 12 sessions between us uh, Tuesday to Sunday that we're, we're teaching um, or speaking or leading at. Um, and we really would appreciate your prayers. Um, shall we say, sometimes it's a bit unpredictable, uh, the, the different places we go to and what happens. And so uh, we'd certainly appreciate your prayers uh, that we might continue the relationships that we've built up over a number of years. So this idea then, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, verses 1 to 25, the whole chapter. Well, let's set the scene for us, because Deuteronomy is book number 5 in the Bible. It's the fifth book of that series we call the Pentateuch, sometimes known as the books of the law. And what happens is that in the early books, in the book of Genesis, uh, then we find a family, Abraham and his family leave Ur, and they travel via Tehran, modern-day southeast Turkey there, and then eventually down into the land of Israel. But by the time we reach the end of the book of Genesis, their descendants, that is uh, Jacob and his family, have ended up living in Egypt with uh, Jacob's son Joseph as, as the prime minister of Egypt. Now, 400 years later, after they spent a lot of time in slavery under Moses, they are led out of Egypt uh, through the Red Sea and down then to the Sinai Peninsula, to Mount Sinai, sometimes known as Horeb. And it's in that situation that there God gives them the law that they are to obey. We might summarize it with the Ten Commandments, but what is happening is that God is saying, now I've brought you out, you're to be my people, and I don't want you to be like the Egyptian people. I don't want you to be worshiping multiple gods. I don't want you to be brutal, and, uh, and I don't want you to be people who do your own thing. I want you to be people who respond in obedience to my love and my commands. So what he'd done, he'd take them out of Egypt, but the law was designed to take Egypt out of them. But the test then came as they traveled a little bit north, uh, and they were going to go into that land that God was going to give them, but they chose to disobey God, to not to trust him. And as a result, God said, well, everybody over that voting age who's decided not to go into the land that I've promised to you, you will wander in this wilderness for 40 years until everyone over that age has died, except for three people, for Moses, uh, and then also for Caleb and Joshua. So by the time they reach uh, the land of Moab, having wandered through that wilderness, then we find them at, uh, the, on the plains of Moab, and there we've got a new generation. Apart from those three individuals, nobody would have been over the age of 60. So they're quite young, really, weren't they? Um, and uh, we see, then, that what Moses does under God's leadership is give this new generation the law. It's not a second law. Deuteronomos means second law. It's the same law again. 
And so he's giving that to them in this book. And that's really where we find ourselves as we come into Deuteronomy. Now, in chapter 5, what he does, he reiterates those Ten Commandments that were given to their parents' generation 40 years ago. Um, And and so, in a sense, what we're saying is in chapter 5, this is what God commanded your parents, but now in chapter 6, this is what you, the new generation, also need to know. And it's quite motivational. Uh, because we, we find that there are purposes. There's so that, there's that, this, there's so that you will, and so on. In fact, my wonderful wife has just spent a week in Bangkok. Doesn't she look good, having just flown home overnight on Friday? Uh, but she's been with her colleagues uh, for a conference, and one of her colleagues, Chris Wright, has written this about these verses at the beginning, at the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6. He says the emphasis is on motivational factors is almost overwhelming in this short passage. Five times we read, so that or that, The stakes were high. The rewards were great. The blessing and promise were in place. But obedience was the heart of the matter. And so we come to possibly the best known verses uh, to the Jewish people because they would say these verses four and five each week in the synagogue. More devout Jews might say them every day, known as the Shema, which means listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Well, there's a range of possibilities about exactly what this the Lord our God, the Lord is one means. But the emphasis here is that their God, Yahweh, we sung of him uh, this morning, Yahweh alone was God in a covenant relationship with Israel. That God had, had done what no other God had done or could do. That Yahweh was one God, not many gods. And this is central to the creed that we too believe that there is one God who we worship. And this God, it, well, can you see there's an element here of both teaching them, telling them about this, but then the response to, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, they were told. Now, in the Hebrew, the, the heart in the Hebrew mindset was, was the seat not of emotions, which is how we would tend to think of it, but was the seat of their intellect, their will, and their intention. And it was the center of you as as a moral agent, the decisions you make. That might help us to understand that when this verse is referred to in the New Testament, in the Gospels, they add the word, love the Lord your God with all your heart and so on, and mind and strength. Because written in Greek to a Greek-speaking audience who would have had much more in terms of their thinking um, about the mind, it sort of helps to understand the original meaning of, of this. And they're to love the Lord their God, not just with all their heart, but with all their soul. The whole inner self, with all the emotions and the desires and the personal characteristics that make each one of us unique. To love God then with all your heart 
and with all your soul means your whole self, including your rationality, your mental capacity, your moral choices, your will, your inner feelings, your desires, and the deepest roots of your life. And adding the word strength implies that it is with every effort. In other words, our love for God should be absolutely over the top in uh, love for him. So having established that this is where their hearts were to be, this is how they were to live, then we move on a little bit I'm sorry, um, there we are. Um, from their hearts to pass it on to their children. And can you see that in the verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, there is a sort of repetition, a rapid repetition of the way they were to do this. They were to impress them on their children. They would talk about them when they sit, walk, lie down, get up. They were to tie them as symbols on their hands. They were to bind them on their foreheads. They were to write them on the door frames of their houses and on their gates. So if it's deeply embedded in your own life, then it's time to pass it on from your hearts to your children. So if we apply this principle today, it is that the truth of God, the truth about God and his commands is not a set of rules to live by. And it's not a set of instructions that is limited to religious leaders or, or it's delegated to youth workers or children's workers to pass on. It's to be the topic of ordinary conversation in ordinary homes from breakfast to bedtime. The law of God is to be applied to the individual because it says your hands and your foreheads it's to be applied to the family in your houses. And it's to be applied in public, civic society, your gates. That's the place of public business, the courts, the markets, and so on. So as believers, we are encouraged to work out the meaning of loving God in appropriate ways for all three levels. The love uh, commitment of the whole person in verse 5 is expanded now to the whole community in verses 7 to 9. And we paraphrase this here at CBC. We call it whole life discipleship. Living for Jesus in every part of our lives. Now, some Jewish people will tie the commands, those verses, in a box to their foreheads and on their arms. This was a picture I took at the Western Wall in Jerusalem about 13 years ago. We do not subscribe to such literalism as that. You will not see uh, many of us walking around with them tied to our forehead or on our arms. In fact, I think that there's good reason to see similar passages in the, New, in the Old Testament as metaphorical rather than literal. But we probably ought to be careful about being critical about people who are too literal unless we too take very seriously this idea of flavoring our whole lives with conscious attention to the law of God. Being a parent is a challenge, isn't it? 
And not every parent finds it easy to talk to their children about God in everyday circumstances. Sometimes we spend our times looking for that prime opportunity and three months later it still hasn't arrived. And so we really need to to do more than that. I was talking with Tabitha yesterday and she has pointed me to this site. You can see the uh, URL down at the bottom of the page there, parentingforfaith.brf.org.uk. And on this site, they've got some, see the key tools, five different ways in which you can incorporate living and talking about Jesus in your family life day by day. They talk about creating windows. Um, That is showing kids an imperfect, real relationship with God. Framing, seeing God in the big and small of life. Unwinding, joining the dots to find a big picture of God. Chat and catch, helping kids hear God's voice and speak to him in their own way. And surfing the waves, joining kids as their interests and emotions flow in new directions. If you click on any one of those, not here obviously, but when you get home, you'll find some really, I think, useful stuff there. And do talk to Tabitha about it if some more if you want to know more. She's been doing quite a lot of um, work. She really has got a heart for the children here. And one of the things she mentioned in conversation was this idea of helping our children to not just know about God, which she referred to as God smart, but also to be God-connected, that it's to be our hearts as well. So we need to ask ourselves, is the priority for us the spiritual faith of our children? You know, if you're a parent, and even when your children are older, you probably have a number of desires for them. You would like them to be well-rounded individuals. You perhaps want them to pass their exams. You'd like them to have friends. You'd like them to have a good job or career. You'd maybe like them to meet and marry someone nice. But the question we have to ask ourselves, is our desire that they love and serve Jesus above all of those? If none of those things happened, but they were people who loved and served Jesus, would that be enough for you as a parent? Because you will have succeeded if you've passed those things on to them. Now, the pressure of life as a parent, you know, chauffeuring from one activity to another, all the questions, all the challenges that your children have at school, your own busy lives, your work responsibilities, a whole load of other things, all, all conspire, in a sense, to make it difficult. So what might you need to do or to give up or to add in order to help this happen? But lest we think this passage is just for parents, it's far more than that, isn't it? Because in the culture of the day, families were more than just two parents and 2.4 children. It was a communal activity, bringing up children. And so that means that in a community of believers, we all have an element of responsibility here. But then it goes wider than that, because in the next few verses, God uh, reminds them about their ability to forget. 
Now, I don't know whether you find yourselves forgetting things. You walk out of one room to go to another, and you can't remember why you've got there. Um, I see Calvin nod, no, nodding there, yeah. Uh, but the, the essence is it gets worse as you get older. Um, but uh, the spiritual forgetting, that's a different thing altogether. Because what's going to happen is that God is going to give them a pre-prepared land. So here we are, not quite three and a half thousand years ago. They're sitting uh, the other side of the River Jordan. God is going to give them that land. And we read that it is a, a land that he promised to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. A land with large flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. In other words, God is the one who's provided all of these things. Lest you think you're self-sufficient, lest you think that all you've got is because God, because you've earned it, he says in verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, they were living in a pretty barren place. They were utterly dependent on God for their food and providing manna each day and had been for so long. But when they moved into the land, then they would have a bit more. And, you know, it's often the case with us. We, no matter our circumstances, we are in a relatively affluent society. And there will be people here who are genuinely struggling with their bills. And you know that there is help available from us if you need that. But, but what about the, that situation? Maybe you've, you've got into it that you have your own home now. Maybe it's a bigger home than you started with. You, you're happy with your job. Um, you've got that promotion. You're enjoying the holidays you're able to take. You're enjoying that relative wealth. And your philosophy of buying local has even extended, and you've got your Rolls Royce at last. Okay? Well, in that situation, in relative wealth we can depend on our comfort and our wealth and not on God. We too can forget God. And that's what the point is. Don't forget God when you've got these things. In fact, can you use your wealth in service of God in so many ways? And then in verse 13, we now have a couple of temptations that they're to avoid. Do not follow other gods and do not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, they're going into a land. They've left Egypt 40 years ago with many gods there, the false gods of Egypt. They're going into a land where some of the residents worship other false gods, and they'll be tempted to be distracted from the worship of their own God to worship the gods of those around them. Now, we tend to not see that as quite as much of a pressure in our society because we don't have you know, a whole series of gods on every street corner to worship and so on, or idols like that. But what, what do we substitute in the place of the idols that the uh, nations around about them would have been operating and, and worshipping? Is it some of the things that are special to us, that are important to us? Do we place those before God? And then not to put the Lord their God to the test, because historically that's what they did. You can read the story of them wandering in the wilderness at Massa and so on. And so the warning is, don't forget God and don't put the Lord your God to the test. I was reading not long ago about something that Mike Tyndall said. Mike Tyndall is the son-in-law of the Princess Royal, Princess Anne. 
And he was referring to an account about the queen as the plans for her funeral arrangements were being discussed with her. And the idea was that if she died at Balmoral, then she would, her body would be put on a plane to be brought back to London. And that the trouble was the sort of small jet would have, in a sense, been had some of the luxury, not that a coffin particularly needs that, of course, but it would have been much more difficult to maneuver the coffin on. So the suggestion was that they used one of the RAF's big transport planes. Do you remember that? And her aunt, and this is the type, of course, that would be used not just for moving troops and equipment around, but was used to repatriate the bodies of some of our military who were killed overseas. And she is, um, it is said that she answered, if it's good enough for my boys, it's good enough for me. When we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find that this chapter is used by Jesus. When he's in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he quotes directly from these verses in response to Satan to reject the temptation. Forgive the fact that I've uh, put one verse in twice here because a bit of a uh, copy and paste error, a basic error there, but perhaps it's good to emphasize it. You see, when being asked if he would worship Satan, Jesus answered with verse 13 from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only. And, and this idea of jumping off the pinnacle of the temple that Satan suggested, you know, get a crowd that way. Jesus answered with verse 16, it's written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hey, Deuteronomy is the favorite book of Jesus. He quotes from it more than any other in the Gospels. Not a bad book for us to read then, is it? To become familiar with it. And then as we come to the end of this chapter from verse 20, we get yet another question. Oh, those pesky kids. They're always asking questions, aren't they? Isn't it just at the most inconvenient of times? But look at it like this. What an opportunity. When your son or when your child asks you, what is the meaning of all the stipulations, decrees, and laws? These, these rules, if you like, that God has commanded you. Well, the suggestion is that you need to know your answers. You need to know what those commands of the Bible are and why they're there. You need to know the Bible. You need to know God's word. You need to know your history not just the history of Israel as they escaped from Egypt, but also your history. What about your interaction with God? How did he bring you to where you are today? And you are to know God's purposes, as was mentioned here in verse 24 and 25. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that, ah, another one of those solats here, that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey this law, all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. The answers you give and the explanations or the things that you discuss that are happening with your children when they're very young, they may not remember. The perspective they have on life and issues at primary school will have matured by the time they reach teenage years and maybe it's time to repeat some of those stories. 
as young adults, they'll start to get a different view of life, and your experience may make all that difference. I, I can remember when one of our sons uh, was working at Seaway and had an old battered car that we got him. It was the only car among the uh, staff there, and uh, it died. Uh, and we just didn't have any means financially to help him out at the time. And so we were able to talk to him about what God had done for us. Because when we moved to this area to work at Seaway to run it, the first four cars we had were all given to us because we didn't have the means to buy them. And so we sort of shared that with him. And, and you know, within a couple of weeks, it was amazing how God had provided in that situation. You know, it's relating past history to present situations, being able to talk about it, um, and, and just looking for opportunities to, to weave it in along the way that God is faithful to you and to me, and we can talk about those issues. We can talk about the struggles we have as well and know that that's living life before our children, uh, living it in the way that God intended that we might indeed be impressing them on our children, talking about them at home, along the road, lying down, getting up, and making it very much part of our lives. Let's encourage one another to do this through the good times, through the difficult times, with our own children, with the community we belong to. Uh, and let's put this into practice in our New Testament era with a real dose of, of whole life discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, encouragement that we can look at these commands from all those years ago to a specific group of people who just finished wandering in a wilderness, and yet we see the principles are here for us today as well. We, we see that the whole deal is not about earning good points or, or, or becoming righteous because of what we do but obeying God out of love for him because of what he has first done for us. And we thank you that our response is because Jesus has come and lived and died on the cross for us, that Jesus has conquered death, that we might come to him and be forgiven. And thank you that with that behind us and all the other ways in which you are involved in our lives and keep us day by day, we've got so much to talk about. Help that to be an everyday part of our lives and our conversation. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.